This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you. Lots to discuss today. We are in countdown mode to the election. And the most interesting information right now in the news cycle is coming from a Russian government slash intel front that violates federal law uh, with its hacking and puts stuff out there that is stolen information, which the media sometimes loves. When it was diplomatic, when it was classified diplomatic cables from the U.S. government and U.S. military uh, cables as well, then WikiLeaks was was a transparency organization. Now it's a Russian front helping Trump get elected, if you look at the media narrative. Isn't that an amazing switch? funny how that happens but the most interesting stuff we're seeing about hillary clinton the trump campaign apparently doesn't have an opposition research wing they, they don't do oppo research they just figure donald is the oppo research or not research but he's the oppo he just got up there you know, she's horrible i hate her look at her pantsuit you know nasty woman and that would be enough meanwhile the clintons had been the clinton machine had been laying in wait and preparing for an anti-Trump ambush in October, classic October surprise, for many months. Who knows really how long? So they decided to go with the tried and true method of get together the nastiest stuff you can and hold it until you can have maximum impact on the election. What oppo research has the Trump? And if it weren't for James O'Keefe and WikiLeaks, the, the Clinton campaign would be able to put out whatever, whatever narrative it wants without any real consequence. Uh, they would just be able to keep bashing Trump, running story after story, pushing story after story with their media allies and surrogates about how terrible Trump is. And there'd be nothing else to say. Meanwhile, WikiLeaks has given us a fascinating look into the Clinton campaign's workings, into the senior figures that Hillary Clinton surrounds herself with. And as is often the case, when we find out more about Hillary Clinton, it's just confirming what you and I already know and have been saying for some time. 
Maybe we have additional details. Maybe there's some other things in it. But more or less, it's what we've thought all along. She just lies. She just loves to lie. Uh, and it's fascinating to see, by the way, the, the coverage. This is a classic study in media bias. If you want to check it out, look at what foxnews.com picks up as what are clearly the most interesting emails from the WikiLeaks dump and the way it writes about them. And then the way the New York Times, which has a lengthy, a lengthy piece out today about donations to the foundations and the emails and such uh, and how it's trying to kind of massage things and always just make it seem like, yes, there are some there are questions of impropriety, but they were dealt with by this person or there were some concerns by this individual. But another individual came in and said, no, no, look at all the fantastic work the foundation does. It's just, you know, on the one hand, you've got journalism trying to speak truth to power. And yeah, of course, Fox is right as center and all that, but it's still, they're running with the better story. The New York Times is downplaying the story. The New York Times is trying to give people who like Hillary Clinton explanations for why they should still vote for this incredibly morally decrepit, ooh, I like that, human being. Uh, But let's start with the Fox version, and then we'll get in Because the the Hillary, I mean, the the New York Times version of all this Hillary stuff is also very interesting, but you have to read between the lines, which we will do together. The Fox stuff, though, here you go. Neera Tandon, who's a very senior Clinton advisor, a close ally of the Clintons, is in an email to Podesta. Oh, and by the way, all this sanctimonious pearl clutching that we're seeing from people, should we really be using stolen emails? And the information's out there. What, are are we now supposed to pretend that it's not out there? Also, that the media isn't constantly forcing the Clinton campaign and Clinton surrogates to confirm the authenticity of these emails. It is not a hard thing to do. Ask them, did John Podesta write this email? We don't know. Okay, well, when can you find out? Because you can just call him and ask him. I'm sure he remembers. Imagine if the shoe were on the other foot, if this were... Damaging information to Republicans. Oh, I don't know, like leaks tax returns. Oh, maybe they weren't stolen. Yeah, sure. I'm, I, they were the only two people who could legally release them without uh, or, or who could legally release them would be Donald or Marla Maples, who was also listed on his time. Why would she do that? You, you, you think she wants to pick a fight with this guy at this point? Might become the next president of the United States. I don't think so. I met Marla once. Trust me. Not exactly a Machiavellian genius. I'm just saying. Uh. So, this is fascinating. Center for American Progress's Neera Tandon writes about the Hillary email situation, which initially we were told, and it's important that you all remember this, initially we were told that this was um, no big deal. I was chided more than once on CNN by various anchors for suggesting that there was clear impropriety in Hillary's email system, that it obviously was not. Remember when she used to say things like, everything I did was allowed at the time? That was the initial line. It was that there was nothing to see here. Now it's, oh, I made a mistake. And in reality, it's, oh, I should have faced criminal prosecution. But I digress. Here's what Neera Tandon wrote in an email about this. Do we actually know who told Hillary she could use a private email? And has that person been drawn and quartered like whole thing is effing insane? 
So this is a senior Clinton aide, a senior Clintonista, recognizing what all of us thought right away when we found out about this. This is crazy. Secretary of State is setting up a private server in her basement to use for all for all of her work communications. This is what, arguably the second most important position in government. And she just thinks that she can go rogue and do this. Any normal person would hear this and say, that's really weird. That's not OK. And then, of course, when you add in that she was uh, trafficking and classified information on this server, it makes it even worse. It makes it considerably worse. And we knew all along that would be the case. In fact, I will say early on, I had thought to myself, there's no way Hillary Clinton's that foolish that she would. I mean, maybe she set up the server to avoid uh, she set up the server to avoid FOIA. I remember she almost got away with it. I like to point that out, too. Don't let them pull this, oh, we're so transparent, we were always going to tell you this. They, this would have never been an issue if it weren't for that Guccifer hacker and, and the Benghazi investigation. We would have not known a lot of this stuff. So Hillary almost got away with this scot-free. Okay. But more to the point right now, everybody knew, everybody knew who was being honest with themselves, that this was a disaster, that this was wildly dishonest, that this looked terrible. Why would she do this? It's so dumb. It's so reckless. It's so classic Hillary Clinton. You know, this people always talk about her pension for secrecy. Uh, she's just been uh, abusing and breaking the rules for her personal benefit for as long as she has, you know, been an adult making her own decisions. I mean, this is just who she is. You know, it's sort of scorpion and frog with Hillary Clinton. You all know that that parable, right? The shortened version is and i think it's is it an aesop's fable too maybe it's not frog says he'll take the scorpion across either side the frog's like yo i'll take you scorpion but if you sting me we're both gonna drown so right we're gonna be cool and scorpion hops in the frog's back they start swimming across the river because scorpions obviously can't swim and right when they get in the middle the deepest point scorpion just buries that stinger right in the frog's back paralyzing him now they're both gonna die frog just says the scorpion because apparently you know the animals can talk why'd you do that bro scorpion's like it's my nature it's what i do i sting people lying is in hillary's nature it's what she does she lies it's like i said before about the furniture and the she's it's like kleptomania it's it's not about having to do it. It's just who she is. It's how she operates. It's how she conducts herself. Lies, lies, lies. That's what she does. That's who she is. Once you put it in that context, once you understand the nature of a person, you now not only know what they're capable of, but you know what to expect from them. And the senior aides around Hillary Clinton, as we see from these emails which do make for very interesting reading, were aware of the fact that this email server situation showed horrible judgment and was a giant political liability, and there was no excuse for it. All of these things are true. All of them. And we knew right away. And what's fascinating to see is that this was their internal communication. Externally, it was all, there's nothing to see here. It's all fine. Externally, it was the classic Clinton two-step. Oh, no, just, you know, look over here. Let's talk about something else. Oh, it was all permitted at the time. That's what she used to say. It was all permitted at the time. This woman had over 100 
classified, classified emails on her server, over 100. And she was telling us that everything was cool in the beginning. And and this is our better option for a president than the other options. I'm I'm sorry. I, I'm just never going. I'm I'm never going to be convinced of that. Not at this point. I mean, may, maybe if we find out that, you know, Trump has got like people's heads in his freezer or something. But short of that, I'm sorry. I can't. I can't be okay with the Clintons because it's really because of what they represent more than anything else. It's because of what they've done to American politics. They've made lying acceptable as long as it's your person doing the lying. And you could say, oh, Buck, well, Trump is the same. Mm. No, I don't remember Trump lying under oath and getting away with it. I don't think he would either. By the way, I did not have. You remember. A little more from this email. This is a Cheryl special Tandon wrote about Cheryl Mills. No, you love her, but this stuff is like her Achilles heel or kryptonite. She just can't say no to this blank. Why didn't they get this stuff out like 18 months ago? So crazy. Yeah, it is so crazy, isn't it? They knew it was crazy. They knew it was terrible. And by the way, the media knew too. But this was their gal. They were circling the wagons. And we see this now. You, you, should have no, you should have almost no trust in the media. I mean, the good thing is now you have more access to different media sources than ever before. And truth is its own currency. Accuracy is its own currency. But you can use partisans on one side to check and see what's going on with the overwhelming number of partisans on the other. They're not telling you the truth. They are lying to you. All those polls that show the lack of trust in media... It's not some conspiratorial nonsense. It would be naive to trust the media. It's been naive, I would say, for decades now. But at this point, good heavens, they're effectively members of the Hillary Clinton campaign. She should be paying them, along with whatever salaries they're getting from these major networks, these bloated salaries. But the market will bear. Yeah, right. These are legacy institutions with people at the top that have partisan agendas. Any number of these journalists could be replaced, but you know what? A lot of them won't be. A lot of these big names in TV journalism won't be replaced, and it's because they've been good little soldiers for Hillary. They've done what they're supposed to do. A lot of them know that they've sold their souls. A lot of them know they have no integrity, but they also know they get big paychecks. They also know they get to be famous, and people think highly, most people think highly of them because of their elevated perches. And so will they make this Faustian bargain? Because any bargain with Hillary at this point, any bargain with Hillary at any point, <laughs> Faustian in nature. Yeah. Yeah, they will. They'll sell their souls for this one. And they have. And WikiLeaks may be, yeah, maybe a, in its own way, a, an insidious organization dedicated to undermining America and all the rest of it. But you know what? If it wasn't for the Soviets, we wouldn't have beaten the Nazis, my friends. So... Sometimes you just got to take what you can to beat who you have to beat. I think that's where we are. Sponsor this half hour is Yankee Hill Machine. Best thing I can tell you to do is go to YHM.net. Yankee Hill Machine's been a fantastic friend and sponsor of this show, and I can't tell you enough how excellent their products are. I'm not just speaking about this from sort of a general sense of, oh, 
you know, I've seen some photos. I have fired their ARs. I have fired their suppressors. This stuff is awesome. You need to check it out. They've got a fantastic selection. They've got great prices. They have really helpful and knowledgeable staff. The website is very easy, very user-friendly. And I'm telling you, if you just give them a shot, you're going to give them a shot. See what I did there? Uh, you're going to be really happy. They're an all-American family-owned company. They're gun guys. The owners, Kevin and Chris Graham, love what they do, and they stay true to the family tradition. So please check out YHM.net. That's Yankee Home Machine, YHM.net. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I also love in these WikiLeaks emails the parts where they discuss how Hillary just doesn't want to apologize. It's too late to apologize for Hillary. Uh, she doesn't like to apologize, and even when she's clearly wrong. Uh, Tandon wrote in September of 2015, uh, everyone wants her to apologize, and she should. Apologies are like her Achilles heel, but she didn't seem like a B-word in the interview, and she said the word sorry. She will get to a full apology in a few interviews. Uh... <laughs> So not only the the truth is fun, isn't it? It's really refreshing to learn some of the truth here. Not only is Hillary Clinton uh, somebody who just doesn't like to say when she's wrong, probably because she'd spend a lot of time doing it because she's constantly doing things that are wrong. Not only is all of that true, but Hillary is, oh, how do we put it? Hillary comes across as not exactly warm and fuzzy sometimes. And even the people who depend on the on their careers and on their futures depend on Hillary Clinton are aware of the fact that she's not particularly likable. Nobody really wants to give her a big hug because she's so wonderful. Uh, so seeing all of this has been very refreshing. Um, and you'll notice that there's not a lot of not, not a lot of dogged investigating going on with these uh, WikiLeaks. Not, not the press are not trying to find out more about this. They're not trying to track down more of the truth. You have uh, Podesta writing, speaking of transparency, our friends, uh, attorney David Kendall, Cheryl Mills, and Philippe Raines sure weren't forthcoming on the facts here. 
so P- Podesta seems well aware of the fact that this is this has just been one big series of of lies. And I, I don't know what else. What else does it? A public official have to do to disqualify herself, not just from higher office, but from any office that involves the public trust, than to set up for the purposes of evading accountability and transparency, a private email server for public business, right? She's being paid as secretary of state to handle the public's interests in international affairs and international relations. She sets up this private server. She then is reckless in her communications with regard to classified information and and then lies about it for months and months and months. If that's not disqualifying, what do we really need? I mean, do we need Hillary Clinton on video buying crack? I don't even know if that would be disqualifying. And as we know in this country, in fact, for some politicians, it's not necessarily disqualifying. So what would disqualify her from higher office in the eyes of her partisans, in in the eyes of those who are with her, as the slogan goes? If this isn't enough, I I just would like to know what the line is. Where is that line? Where is that line of, hey, if you do this, if you go this far, it's too much? Does it even exist? Is there such a thing? Donald Trump was at least forthright when he said that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and his supporters would still support him. Same thing's true of the hardline Hillary folks. And with Hillary, she's done some pretty terrible stuff. Illegal stuff. Not just said gross things and acted like a jerk stuff. But we've got more. Schindler coming up. Spy time. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's switch gears with spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is spy time. John Schindler at 20 Committee on Twitter and the national security columnist for the New York Observer is with us now. You can read his latest on Observer.com. Syria's civil war is over. Russia won. It's time to accept the painful reality of Syria's fratricide. That is his latest piece. John, great to have you. Great to be here as always, Buck. So what is going on? Why is why is uh, Syria's civil war over and why has Russia won it? Uh, well, look, uh, the Obama administration has dithered now for five years, essentially the entire length of Syria's awful civil war, has never quite figured out what to do, uh, let Putin essentially take control in 2013, and now the White House is shocked and embarrassed that this has happened. And, of course, it's come up in our political campaign this year since Hillary has said she wants a no-fly zone in Syria, and Mr. Trump has just called her essentially lunatic for wanting to cause World War III with the Russians over Syria. So this has become front-page news again in the U.S. And I think it's time we accept reality about the truth of this conflict and what our strategic options are, which is really pretty limited. It reminds me of, you know, the old State Department joke that your only three options in international affairs are uh, suffer in silence, nuclear war, or do some diplomacy. 
it, it is, as you've pointed out on Twitter, it is a Kremlin line that a stronger U.S. hand in any respect in Syria would result in World War III. So not particularly helpful for Donald Trump to be throwing that around. No, it's not. And, of course, he's been parroting Kremlin propaganda essentially verbatim on a lot of issues. He, he doesn't think the Russians have hacked into Hillary's emails, even though the intelligence community has openly said they're quite confident that they did. Uh, and he's, he's just taking the Kremlin line word for word translated from Russian to English on Syria. But let me add, as opposed as I am to Trump, it doesn't mean that he's wrong about some of this. Let, let me make that clear. The Russians are feeling very happy with themselves uh, with their intervention in Syria to save their, their Assad client regime in Damascus. They've, they're getting what they wanted at a pretty modest cost. They're sort of laughing at the U.S. since we've made a hash of Iraq, of Afghanistan, of Libya, and can't seem to ever get what we want, whereas the Russians set modest goals and have, are on their way to really achieving them. And, uh, you know, the Russians are feeling pretty self-confident right now, and that itself can be very dangerous. One of the interesting points uh, you make in your piece, and everyone can check it out on Observer.com, uh, we're talking to John Schindler, who's their national security columnist, is w- what's the need? If, if you're really just fighting terrorism, why do you need S-300 and S-400 anti-aircraft missile systems in Syria if you're the Russians? That seems a little right. provocative. It is. And, of course, Putin made a big deal at the U.N. not long ago about, hey, everyone needs to join us to fight the Islamic State and fight ISIS. Trump has said the same thing. The problem, of course, is that it's well documented, even in publicly available information, that the Russians are not really fighting ISIS. They're sort of fighting ISIS. They're fighting the many enemies of the Assad regime, of which ISIS is only one. Uh, and that doesn't sound so good in public forum, so the message gets reduced to, we're, we're really fighting terrorism, and the Americans are actually backing it. The, the, the Kremlin actually publicly says over and over again, the U.S. is supporting terrorism in Syria. So this has gotten really nasty in the war of words sense, and Hillary has kind of upped the ante by calling for a no-fly zone uh, in Syria, which the Russians view as very provocative, not least because, in effect, there already is a nice no-fly zone in Syria. It's just monitored administered by the Russian Air Force. And it, it is certainly true that if we choose to challenge that, there will be military confrontation. Make no mistake, the Russians would actually welcome it at this point, especially if it could be limited, if they could shoot down a couple American planes and send Washington a message that we won't forget. Now, you trace a lot of this back, and, and you're, very, you're very open in the piece about how, look, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, intervention, intervention with U.S. military troops, we've learned, or we should have learned at least, enormously complicated, huge costs, and oftentimes a, a bad idea under the best of circumstances or under the most obvious circumstances, yeah. even, in, even in the case of Afghanistan, which is, we talked about earlier this week, in the process of a slow and complete deterioration. Nonetheless, uh, you say that the red line that Obama walked away from in Syria was in some ways the sort of beginning of all of this. Absolutely. And let me make clear, I I never wanted U.S. military intervention in the Syrian conflict. However, over three years ago, when President Obama publicly said he had a red line in Syria, which would be Assad regime use of chemical weapons against the rebels, which would invariably kill civilians, that the United States would not tolerate. Whether he should have said it or not, he did. And he put American credibility on the line. And these things matter in international relations a great deal, no matter what people at Vox and other liberal sites tell you. And by walking away from his own red line and letting the Russians, in effect, take over the Syrian conflict, this was an enormous blow to American prestige in the Middle East. And I would argue, very clearly, empowered Putin's aggressive behavior elsewhere. It is not a coincidence that only six months after Obama publicly walked away from his own red line in Syria, September 2013, 
Putin takes Crimea from Ukraine because he feels empowered, he feels he can get away with it, he can push Obama around because he can. And so I, I think the consequences of this are global, not just the Middle East, but they're bad enough in the Middle East. I mean, let's be very clear. The Israelis are dealing with the Russians now. The, the National Security you know, Help Department over the United States. That's a good or bad thing. You can argue it both ways. I don't think the Russians being the new sheriff is a good thing. Uh, and it, that is detrimental to our interests and the interests of close allies. So what Obama did is it has a lot of impacts that are a lot bigger than just Syria. And the the implications uh, of of what happens now, it seems to me that the next administration, no matter what they do, I mean, we're, look, it's it's a good thing that Mosul is being liberated. Although I, I do think people are beginning to once again, because now that means that the anti ISIS fight and not just the latest Trump tweet or you know or Hillary email revelation or something is dominating the news cycle. Uh, there's been a tremendous cost that has uh, been borne by the people of Syria and Iraq. Iraq is an allied yeah. state. Of course, we're, we're very much responsible for a lot of a lot of what's happened in that country in recent sure. years. You got a half a million people dead in Syria. We're liberating Mosul and finding out that the place has been like a giant decapitation and torture chamber for the last couple of years. Uh, sitting back and doing not a whole lot comes with its own cost. And I, I feel like the administration has gotten a pass on that. You know, the the. the the, the, the don't they do stupid yeah. stuff philosophy is actually just don't do anything. And a lot of really good people, including your allies, are going to die. That's right. And I'm the first one to say not all problems have a military solution. And ISIS is a wicked problem that will not be defeated quickly. However, as you hinted, the Obama White House has gotten this incredible pass from the, from the mainstream media on doing absolutely nothing. Had any other president, Lord knows any Republican, overseen the frankly, genocidal warfare that's happening on our watch in Iraq and now in Syria, there'd be nonstop outrage. You remember, and those remember the 1990s and, you know, the castigating George H.W. Bush for not doing enough in the Balkans and Somalia, whatever. We've heard hardly anything from the mainstream media that's really as critical of this White House as it deserves to be. Uh, again, I, I'm no backer of humanitarian intervention, but let's be absolutely clear. This is an administration that said they believe in the responsibility to protect. We intervened in Libya over the mere threat of large-scale killings of civilians by the... actually happened on a huge scale in Syria. So the hypocrisy and stupidity of this is, is just... And worse, our enemies and rivals are watching all this very closely. What do you think Putin's next steps are going to be? I mean, it seems to me that no matter what the next administration coming in, whether it's a Trump or Clinton administration, wants to do, they are somewhat limited in Syria. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, there's there's no ousting Assad is not happening. That's off the table. I mean, so I, I really guess to your to your point about has Putin you know has Putin won in Syria? Seems to me the answer has to be yes because the, the whole purpose was the uh, the propagation, the continuation of the Assad regime, and there is no way. Either administration is going to come in and be like, you know what, we're not just going to take back Raqqa and work with Kurdish militias and whoever else we have to. We're also going to, like, toss that guy out of Damascus. Never going to freaking happen. No, if, if Hillary Clinton comes in on the 20th of January of the new year, as she's looking pretty likely to do, if she walks into the tank in the Pentagon and says to her generals and admirals, hey, it's time to set up a no-fly zone in Syria and get rid of Assad, I can assure you our top military leadership is going to explain to her the extraordinarily complex reality of that and that this is going to wind up with dead Americans, dead Russians, and more dead Syrians. Uh, whoever becomes president is going to face terrible problems in Syria. They just don't have 
a, a real solution it, that we would find tolerable. If I were president, I would say we need to accept the Assad regime, unpleasant as it is, is going to survive at least for now because the Russians are going to prop them up no matter what, as will the Iranians, and set up whatever deal we can to calm down the civil war, save lives, stop the slaughter. That's really what success looks like at this point after five years of total incompetence and lies from the Obama White House. Whoever comes in almost has to be better on this, but we'll see. What are what are you what do you think are Putin's next steps? Because uh, he's going to have a yeah. new administration, and every new administration comes in, and people are still trying to figure out you know how to log into the computers and where the bathrooms are at the NSC and everywhere yeah. else, right? So yeah. he's going to have a new administration to be handling. What do you think are the next steps in the Middle East? I mean, does, does Iran play uh, play big sure. in Russia's future for its uh, Mid East plans? What do you think happens? Well, they have a touchy relationship. They're 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 they don't trust each other, nor should they. Syria and Iraq actually rather nicely. We please keep in mind that for some time in Baghdad, the Russians and Iranians have had a joint operations center sponsored by the Iraqi government, which are, of course, ostensibly our allies, but not really. They're really Iran's allies to some extent, Russia. However, in the long term, the Russians and Iranians are not going to be good friends in the Middle East. They never have been. And they, they too, will have a falling out. I, I think the problem probably President Clinton is going to face is that Putin, by attempting to intervene in our election so openly, has really upset Hillary. Let's make no mistake. And this administration will come in wanting payback. And that sets up a potential confrontation. As you said, while everyone's learning where the office is, where the water cooler is, I think we should expect Putin, being Putin, being having a bias for action, being a KGB guy, uh, will undertake tactical actions to test American resolve. And the problem, of course, is those sort of tests can turn hot and people can die, and that's when you have a genuine international crisis on your hands. Um, he is not going to have the free hand with Hillary that he's had with Obama to do whatever the heck he wants. That's pretty much over. Um, I think if Trump becomes president, that's a whole other set of problems, but I bet that's not looking very likely if you believe the polling right now. But so we could see the you know a, a, a shipping freighter full of Russian nationals all of a sudden beached uh, off of a Baltic state and then, you know, a a Russian emergency relief force arrives or, you know, just some nonsense like that just to push the lines a little bit. Yeah, and understand that time is not on Putin's side right now. The Russian economy is really hurting. The Russian middle class is taking it really badly. It's evaporating thanks to the sanctions. Um, And this is not a situation that is stable in the long term for Russia. And the less that Putin feels he has to lose, the more dangerous this gets. I don't think Putin's crazy, not at all. But I think he's being a KGB guy. He's a really tactical short-term thinker. They don't do strategy, which is why tactically, short-term, a lot of the things Putin does are just brilliant. They're incredibly cunning, and they've played the Obama administration for fools over and over again. But the long-term vision of what Russia wants and how to get there is sort of and mostly former KGB guys. They're not big picture thinkers. And that's why the risk of a confrontation over, whether it be the Baltics, whether it be Ukraine again, whether it be Syria, is real. Because, look, he keeps rolling the dice, he keeps pushing boundaries, and it keeps working for him. And eventually, that luck will run out. But no one knows where it will be, but I guarantee you it will. John Schindler is formerly of the NSA. He is the national security columnist for the New York Observer. Observer.com is where you'll find his stuff. At 20 Committee on Twitter is where you'll find his tweets. John, always good, sir. We'll have you back soon. Great pleasure, my friend. Have a great day. Bye. Team, we'll be back after this break. Beck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network.
if any of you saw this, but uh, it's on theblaze.com as well as some other spots online. Frank Luntz, the pollster guy, uh, says that if Rubio were in the race, he would be up eight points against Hillary Clinton. Uh, Kasich, according to Luntz, would be winning by 12 points. And Senator uh, Senator Ted Cruz would be even with Hillary. That's without them being the candidates, and that's without you know. Look, I can you trust these this sort of hocus pocus? What woulda coulda shoulda stuff? I don't know. I do think it's interesting, and I I do have to say that I can't imagine I can't imagine Marco Rubio just from all we know about how people vote and why they vote and everything else being either a super tight election with Hillary or, or or a considerable win. I just can't I can't foresee a situation in which he's not the guy who uh, who can beat her and I think there are others as well in that field that could have won. Uh you know, it, we're going to know, we're going to have a lot of soul searching if Trump loses, which maybe maybe he won't. Although it is being referred to by people that I know and trust as it would be a black swan event. Uh, it would be a or or also if you look at uh, the way that they do uh, pre- future predictions, they call it a fat a fat tail event, low probability, high impact. I just think it's interesting that we, there are other candidates that would have won. You look at the way state houses were going. We got the House, we got the Senate, and here we are now being told that it's all over. I don't believe it's all over though, so I will say that um, we're going to be. Uh, Talking a bit more, I, I want to get into the New York Times version of the Clinton Foundation stuff in the next hour. I think it is important. It is interesting. We will also talk about uh, the latest on Mosul from someone who was just over there uh, in the third hour with a buck brief. And uh, probably get into a little bit of, of pre-Halloween talk, which will be fun. So I've got a lot of show planned for you here that we're going to bounce around on some different things. So get excited. 888-900-3393. I don't think we've taken a call yet from the team, so I'd like to get some into the next hour. Uh, So light up those lines. Anything, the election, Halloween, I don't know, how to make the best gluten-free macaroni and cheese. Whatever you've got in mind, call in. We'll talk about it. Hour two coming up. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hub. We're joined by our friend Charles Cook. He is the editor of National Review Online. He is at Charles C W Cook with an E at the end on Twitter. The only Charles. Good to have you, sir. Thank you for having me. Let's just sort of start it with. How are you feeling about the election right now, Charles? What what are your thoughts on all this stuff that's going on? I think a lot of it's in the balance. I don't think the presidential election is in the balance. Uh, I think the Senate is. In fact, the Real Clear Politics average today shows the Democrats picking up only two seats, which would be nothing short of a miracle. I don't think the House is going to go to the left either. 
So it could well be that we have a Democratic president and a Republican Congress once again. In a sense, nothing would have changed. So you largely discount uh, the idea that the polls are either not reflective or the polls are skewed in some way, either intentionally or not. You think this is now, um, I think... I think your colleague Kevin Williamson said that Trump winning could now be considered a black swan event, which means not impossible, but just really unlikely. You're in the really unlikely category. I think it's really unlikely. It's possible that there is a uh, a slight uh, underrepresentation of the Trump vote within the polls, certainly not deliberately, uh, but they could be uh, missing something. But I can't see how that would translate into an electoral college victory for Trump. Uh, if I am wrong, I will come on your radio show and say mea culpa. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, but it just seems unlikely at this point. Now, National Review came out, uh, a while, I forget how many months it was ago, with, with Never Trump. Um, and a lot, a lot of your writers have been uh, firmly Never Trump, openly Never Trump for, for quite a long time. If he loses, what is the plan uh, for, what, what is the plan in your mind, or should be the plan, a better way to put it, for conservatism in the face of a Hillary presidency? Sort of how, how do we rally the troops, so to speak? Not like grab the muskets, as some, one congressman tweeted yesterday. I was like, what is he doing? How do we rally the troops, metaphorically speaking, of conservatism? Well, I think that part will be easy. Coalitions tend to be forged in opposition. Hillary Clinton quite quickly is going to put forward some policy proposals and probably some appointment proposals that will be uh, opposed by both uh, never-Trump conservatives and by pro-Trump conservatives and by those in the middle. Uh, and it will behoove none of those groups to side with Hillary out of spite. I can't see that happening. Uh, where I think it will be more difficult going forward is working out what the party is for, <clears throat> what the conservative movement uh, is for, indeed. Uh, there are obviously differences on trade, uh, on immigration, uh, on economics and entitlements. Uh, and uh, those will come to the fore, especially as uh, the House of Representatives, if it stays Republican, and the Senate uh, try to send bills to Hillary's desk. But I think in the immediate term, uh, the opposition to Hillary is likely to be unified because whatever those differences uh, might be proactively uh, she does represent an ideology that is opposed uh, by all facets of the conservative movement. Do you think that there is an opportunity to, or, or, or let, let me rephrase this, um, some talk about a purge within conservatism, and, and not in terms of, of voters, but in terms of the sort of opinion makers, writers, pundits, and, and all the rest, um, who seem to maybe have been overly opportunistic in their support of Trump. Um, is it your opinion that we should sort of that everyone should skip the I told you so's and the who's to blame and just try to rally the opposition to Hillary on ideological grounds? Or do you think some cleansing of the movement, so to speak, is necessary? Well, I think we have to distinguish here. And you did so yourself. I am not, as a rule, in favor of purges or cleansing. Those are ugly words. Uh, and I think that where differences have been honestly arrived at and honestly explicated, trying to work through them and to, to achieve some form of reconciliation will be imperative. 
uh, I have said over and over again, uh, whatever I might be accused of, uh, that my beef is not with Trump's voters, at least not most of them. There is an unpleasant fringe in the alt-right. Uh, uh, it is with Trump, uh, and that I'm quite happy to debate those who disagree with me. I think it's important. Uh, there are, however, those who have backed Trump, I think, uh, through sheer expedience, and not only backed him, uh, expediently, uh, but gone back on everything they seemed to believe in before. I'm thinking of Sean Hannity. I'm thinking of Laura Ingraham. These were enforcers. These were ideological bouncers, essentially. If anybody stepped remotely out of line, these figures would say they were a rhino or a squish. And yet they've explained away routinely all of Trump's uh, apostasies uh, and now have gone so far as to try to excommunicate uh, those who dislike Trump. And I think there has to be a reckoning for those people, uh, not for the voters, uh, but for the opportunists in the media uh, who uh, not only broke faith with their listeners, in my view, uh, but with their own consciences. What do you think about the uh, both the way that the media is treating the WikiLeaks revelations? I, I, I feel like it, it's amusing to watch them try to pretend that that this is, you know, that, that gentlemen don't read other gentlemen's mail is, is, sort of their, is their newfound attitude about this. They don't really want to talk about it. And also, is there anything in these revelations, in these emails that you find remotely surprising about the Clinton, the, the sort of Clinton camp or Hillary herself? Well, I think they do demonstrate the scale of the corruption. Uh, Hillary Clinton is not business as usual. What I find far more distasteful than the media wrangling with whether or not to look into uh, the WikiLeaks revelations, it's not just the media. Marco Rubio has suggested that this is a tricky moral question. I think he's right. What I find far more uh, distasteful uh, is the media's pretense that uh, because Donald Trump uh, is somewhat outré, that Hillary Clinton must be normal. Uh, there is this attempt out there to cast the election of Hillary Clinton as somehow standard, uh, as somehow business as usual. And it's not. I can't think of a presidential candidate in the last half century who has been so obviously corrupt, who has been so obviously uh, dishonest. Now, if one's view is that Donald Trump is so bad that one has to vote for Hillary Clinton or the other way around, that's absolutely fine. I respect that. But let's not whitewash what we're dealing with here. Uh, and we know now what we're dealing with, not only because uh, of the email scandal that has been a slow drip, drip, drip onto Hillary's forehead now for a year and a half, uh, but because she has and her advisors have uh, been outed as the duplicitous charlatans that they are. Uh, and I hope that once the election is over, if indeed Hillary Clinton wins, uh, that the press will treat her uh, with the suspicion that she so obviously deserves. I'm not convinced they will. Do you think that she has been, if she wins, uh, hobbled politically, meaning that there's going to be the, the opposition? I mean, there was clearly a honeymoon when President Obama came into office, whether people wanted there to be or not. There was, OK, this this uh, charming, uh, charismatic uh, individual, first black president, he comes into office and y you couldn't sort of day one, oh my gosh, he's terrible. I mean, some people try, but it wasn't effective, right? It wasn't effective to say within Obama's first month in office that, you know, he's, he's, uh, any, any number of things one could critique him on later. I feel like with Hillary, she comes into that office and she drags with her all of this, 
not not just baggage, but very obvious uh, deficiencies. And I think people can start hitting them right away. So is there some chance that maybe she, just for the purposes of functioning, has to extend some sort of uh, olive branch to the Republicans, assuming they hold the Senate of the House? Or do you think she just digs in and we get you know four years of political trench warfare? That's a fascinating question, and I don't know the answer. To your first question, yes, I do think she will come in hobbling. And I do think it's going to matter. Uh, it's not just that she is so obviously corrupt. It's not just that she is so widely disliked. Uh, it's that it is almost impossible for her and her acolytes to make the case that she was elected rather than that she was the default option. Whereas with Barack Obama, he won. He won very well in 2008, and he won convincingly in 2012. Nobody in their right mind thought that Barack Obama had been chosen as the default. I mean, fair play, he won the election. I wish he hadn't won either of them, but he did. Hillary, on the other hand, I think would have lost to almost any Republican. Uh, she's extraordinarily weak, uh, and she is going to, and if indeed she wins, um, because the other choice was unpalatable, not because people particularly liked her or agreed with her or were even interested in what she had to say. And that is, of course, going to hobble her. Now, how she behaves is an open question. Does she try to cut a deal? Does she become especially hawkish on foreign policy to try to placate some conservatives? Uh, does she... Uh, retreat into the arms of her base, uh, as Obama seems to have done. I, I really don't know. I think one of the reasons that we can't know is that Hillary Clinton is, as somebody put it amusingly recently, ideologically promiscuous. She doesn't seem to have much of a North Star. Uh, what she does will almost certainly be dictated by events rather than by uh, convictions. It seems that if one looks into her past, she was, back when she was writing uh, sort of sweet nothings to uh, Saul Alinsky, and she, she was an ideologue of the left, but over the course of her career, actually just became a, a sort of classic corrupt, cronious politician in the transactional third world autocrat kind of sense of things and, and, and left behind much of the ideology that it feels like when she was younger and, and uh, before she had been first lady was clearly animating a lot of her career. I think yes and no on that. Uh, in some ways, she is a, a left-wing extremist, certainly on the question of, say, abortion, she is. Uh, but you have to remember, this is somebody who was a Goldwater fan, somebody who did not have um, much even knowledge of what progressive thought um, before she was a teenager. Uh, and she slowly moved over to the Democratic Party in the late 1960s. Then she drifted. She was with her husband, it seems, on the, the third way, the Democratic Leadership Council. If you read interviews with her in the early 1990s, she says interesting things. She says, for example, that if she could expand Medicaid, she would be happy getting rid of a lot of the existing welfare system, not something you would hear a Democrat say now. Um, I wonder uh, whether she is a, a, an interesting mix or whether she really uh, is something of a cushion. It takes the, the impression of the last person uh, who sat on her, so to speak. So uh, I, I don't know, Buck. I don't know. Uh, one thing I do know is this. Um, the the uh, North Star for Hillary Clinton, and indeed for her husband, uh, is a mirror. Uh, and uh, she will uh, do whatever it takes, or whatever she thinks it will take, uh, to win in 2020. And that's why I say I think events are going to determine how she behaves far more than any ideology. 
Charles Cook is editor of National Review Online. You can follow him on Twitter at Charles C.W. Cook. Charles, always great to have you, sir. Thank you for giving us some time. Uh, Thank you so much. All right, team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. Let's talk. I want to hear from you. Jason in D.C., what is up, my man? Hey, um, uh, you're prepared for the Russian full-scale assault on Election Day in Syria? I've heard what? about the fleet. Uh, you know, the, the, the Russians, they're doing their, they're sending their fleet. They're, they're going to be in Syria right around the time of the election. Oh, the big show of force the Russians have, are planning? Yeah. I, I, I fully expect this whole everything that everybody's talking about. They're going to put a big foot down over there and uh, establish dominance. And anybody talking about no-fly zones or this or that, it's all going to be out the window. Because, again, the, the thing that everybody seems to be leaving out of this discussion is the Russians can never, ever, ever allow Assad to change power. They just can't have it. Yeah, well, he's their most he's their most Absolutely. important client in the Middle East, no question. I mean, not, not only does he give them a, a year-round warm water port in the Mediterranean, which is uh, they view it as vitally strategic, uh, a vitally a vital strategic asset, but they, he also this now sets a precedent whereby if you become friends with the Kremlin, you know the Kremlin will they will just do what is necessary to back you. They don't they don't care what Amnesty International says. They don't care what the UN says, and that has a lot of resonance in many places around the globe. Well, but we're also having to go with the assumption that we don't have a history ourselves of supporting or backing people that are bad uh, people also. You know, again, in this whole point, I use this thing I call I call it the Christmas tree test. I know this much. When Assad's in power, people can put up Christmas trees in, this, in the town square and celebrate Christmas. Whoever is going to come after, whoever we're thinking we're going to replace them with is not going to allow that. Uh, yeah, Assad was – it's actually interesting. Assad and uh, Saddam Hussein kept the Christian communities in their overwhelmingly Muslim communities safe and did not allow uh, you know, mass murder and persecution of the Christians. Other people, mass murder and persecution for sure, but had senior Christians in the, uh, in the Iraqi uh, Ba'athist apparatus, and Assad kept Christians safe. And now they're on the verge of extinction in, in both countries, actually, in Iraq and in Syria. Yeah, I mean, but but they're both brutal dictators are. that killed hundreds of thousands of their own people. So it's, it's sort of a, a tough... It's it's tough to bring that up and not feel like you're discounting much worse crimes, Jason. I, I, you know, again, we're you know, are people picking the lesser of two evils in this in this election? You know what I'm saying? I mean, the problem that we've had constantly though is this fact that we somehow think we can bring Jeffersonian democracy to a region of the world that, for the most part, most of these people are living no better than Fred Flintstone in Bedrock. I mean, they're living. They're living better than that. We're talking about Syria. Syria's actually been a uh, Syria's been around a long time. I mean, Damascus and Aleppo uh, are pretty I, big I, cities. Yeah, I was, I was referring to our. Uh, Afghan- oh, you're from ISIS. Yeah, our Afghanistani ISIS worlds. I got gotcha. you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I think you're know, going a little again, far. You know, I mean, a little far there with well, we Syria and Iraq, I mean, chief. You know, we, yeah, 
you know, we can't we can't talk about the Russians and somehow think that we can just keep bullying our way around uh, in in parts where they themselves have a firm national interest in maintaining that. I mean, this is not some com- country in the Congo of Africa or something like that. I mean, this is something that is a strategic thing, no different than uh, the United States trying to protect the Bahamas or something. Well, that's how, that's certainly how the Russians see it, and it is. You know, we 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 don't like. Other powers establishing satellite states and sort of uh, launch pads for their own military into into other regions. And it is true that while we think of ourselves as the benevolent hegemon, every other country that can do those sorts of things is like, so you can do it, but we can't. Huh? That's a problem. Yeah. So well, there is but, that. And then let's talk, and then how come nobody's really drilling down on the Philippines? <laughs> I mean, he's saying he wants the Americans out of out of the Philippines. Well, the rest of the government apparatus, they're just, you know, they're they're disagreeing with them and saying that that, that he doesn't have the authority or the power to just sort of do that. But, yeah, we'll see. Duterte is, is, a uh, is, is a problem. Pretty All right, Jason from D.C., good to have you, my man. Good to have you on. Robert in Florida, what's up? Hey, Buck, thanks for taking my call. I enjoy your show, even though I don't may, may not agree with all your opinions. Um, but well, I appreciate you listening. Um, I, I, you know, the, the polls are the polls to me don't reflect the true, um, truly what's going on. Uh, I, I'm not a naive person, and I can see what's I can see Trump's rallies, and he can have thirty five thousand people show up at any particular rally that he goes to. And Clinton may have a thousand, couple thousand people show up at hers. Yet she, they, the polls show that she's leading in the polls. Well, I can manipulate a poll by just calling Democrats and. Oh yeah, it's going to look like it's going to look like Clinton's winning, or I could take a poll at one of Trump's rallies and Trump will beat her by a landslide. I so I mean, ideally, realistically, I don't think the polls reflect the, what the the American public is actually that supporting Trump versus what they're what they're trying to, to the propaganda that the mainstream media is trying to pump down the American people's throat that this is how it is. I don't believe it's like that at all. Well, Robert, that's actually a perfect segue into the perception manipulation that the New York Times is engaged in when it comes to Trump supporters, which I'm going to get to in the next segment. So, Robert from Florida, thank you for your call, sir. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Uh, phone lines will still be open, team. We come back on the other side if you want to chat some more. 888-900-3393. Uh, also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you're listening and you haven't already done so, please do click like or follow on the page. So then you're sort of into all things Freedom Hut on your Facebook feed. We'll be back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Take a call from Rick in Pennsylvania. What's up, buddy? Hey, Buck. How you been, man? I'm all right, man. How about you? I'm doing good. Hey, I was just calling in response to that last gentleman you had on there uh, who's saying he doesn't trust the polls. And I don't really you know, necessarily buy into all the polls either. However, when Trump was ahead in the polls during the primary season against Cruz and Rubio and such. Everybody was like, yay, the polls are accurate. Look at this. And actually, they actually overpredicted his victories. But they were still correct in the sense that he won this state or he won that state. 
those exact same polls were showing that he could not win head-to-head against Hillary Clinton. So to say that there's some kind of skewing in the polls today is just intellectually inconsistent because it's the same scientific polling that was used then showed he couldn't win now, but it also showed that he would win the primaries. So it's just uh, the polls are actually seemingly tracking consistently at least. Well, sir, a, a couple of thoughts on, on what you're saying, Rick. First is, as you know, people believe what they want to believe. So we start there. Um, I mean, right? I mean, we can agree on that. And then yep. in terms of uh, the poll, look, polls are polls are just a snapshot of perception and time. More important for the molding of perception during an election than anything else, right? It, we, we think of it as the polls are almost like this. They become this tool to reflect reality back to us. When really, for the purposes of media, polls are much more important for convincing people of a certain narrative, right? Oh, this happened to Trump last week, which we all said was so bad. And look at what happened in the polls. Oh, Hillary Clinton is, you know, having a a great couple of weeks here as referenced in the polls. And she's going to win and she's inevitable. They use the polls as a tool, right? It's not so that what I'm trying to get at is polls are never really this this sort of objective uh, data set that because because what what does a poll a month before or, or even a few weeks before an election really mean? I mean, it, it doesn't mean, a, you know, something crazy could happen tomorrow and the poll co- completely changes. So our obsession with it is is twofold. One, I mean, it's sort of the media obsession. It just creates the perception of like a sports match or a horse race or it's, you know, you know, yin and yang, good and bad, uh, fighting it out. Uh, whichever side you happen to be on with this whole thing. Um, and it also, I think, is a very useful tool to try to make people try to give numbers to the case that they're making. Right. Donald Trump is better on national security. Look at this poll. Hillary Clinton is better on the economy. Look at this poll. So it's always uh, there's always this, just like when, when you're talking with people with the news with news coverage, you know, what stories they pick to cho- to cover in the first place have a subjective aspect to them so I, i'm just going to say that yeah i, I agree it, trump saying oh look at my polls look at my polls and now saying the polls are fake of course there's a there's a disconnect there and you're right there's an intellectual inconsistency um he would probably respond or no i shouldn't say that somebody on trump's side who is more adept at responding on the spot than he is would say well yeah but when the poll th- there wasn't an effort to defeat there there wasn't an effort for trump to lose underway when he was setting the polls right in fact, the media wanted well, Trump to win the primary. Now, maybe they're I'm not saying this is true. I'm just saying I believe this would be the response. Now they clearly want the the media does want to hammer home the perception that this is all over before it's even uh, before we even had the votes. Agreed. I, mean, I think that is true. Whether the numbers are real or not, that that reality exists. Agreed. And I've always believed that polls, like you said, are intended more for a tool to push or lean towards an objective that the media wants. But the only thing that, that that causes me to pause in that statement is the fact that if they wanted Trump to win the primary so bad, and yet they also posed at the exact same time that he was going to lose the general, uh, that at least in my mind gives some level of independence or objectiveness or objectivity to the poll as opposed to being just a straight media tool like an internet poll or uh, a New York Times poll or something like that. I don't know. Just a thought. No, look, there's uh, there are some pollsters that I think really do put a premium on accuracy 
and that becomes that becomes the most important thing for them. And so, you know, when you're when when accuracy is your primary goal, I, I do think that polling can be, uh, you know, useful to get a sense of where all of this is going. But of course, polls change. Uh, but Rick, thank you for mm-hmm. calling in from Pennsylvania, my friend. Good to talk to you. Shields high. Speaking of the molding of perception, oh, let's have a talk, shall we? Classic New York Times here. And it's, you know, the New York Times, it's tough to really gauge how influential the New York Times is with a certain set. If you are, if you consider yourself uh, educated, fancy, and with it in New York City, in, well, the Post, I guess, in D.C., but a lot of people in D.C., I think, also read the New York Times. Um, but in the New York area, which the New York, New York City alone is 8 to 9 million people, and then the, when you add sort of the New York metro area, it's much bigger than that. Uh, the New York Times has a lot of sway with the elites, and it is still the sort of newspaper of choice for those elites, many of whom have a tremendous amount of influence in government, a lot of money to throw around. I mean, these are people who have power, right, in one way or another. And they read pieces like this, and it both affirms their perceptions of the, quote, other side, as as well as sort of gives them new ammunition, metaphorically speaking, uh, for the sneers and jeers that they direct at those that they believe aren't just politically opposed to them, but are really, because of their political ideas, kind of less than. And this is a perfect example of that. Some Donald Trump, this is a New York Times piece today, front page of the New York Times, or at least front of them, I mean, top story on the website, whatever. I, I, I haven't read an actual newspaper newspaper in who knows how long. Some Donald Trump voters warn of revolution if Hillary Clinton wins. This is how they get into this piece. Big crowds still mob Donald J. Trump when he comes to town with fans waiting in long lines to attend his rallies where they eagerly jeer his Democratic rival and holler happily at his message. But beneath the jeering, a new emotion is taking hold among some Trump supporters as they grapple with reports predicting that he will lose the election. A dark fear about what will happen if their candidate is denied the White House. Some worry that they will be forgotten, along with their concerns and frustrations. All right, but here we go, everybody. Others believe the nation may be headed for violent conflict. Jared Hallbrook of Green Bay, Wisconsin, said that if Trump lost to Hillary Clinton, which he was worried would happen through a stolen election, it could lead to, quote, another revolutionary war. People are going to march on the capitals, said Mr. Hallbrook. They're going to do whatever needs to be done to get her out of office because she does not belong there. If push comes to shove, he added... Hillary Clinton has to go by any means necessary. It will be done. And they go on. I mean, they, they have more. They have more people uh, sort of with similar rhetoric here. And it's very clear what you're supposed to get from this article. Um, you're supposed to get that Donald Trump supporters aren't just rubes. They aren't just uh you know, jorts wearing, fanny pack clad, cheeseburger eating, NASCAR watching, mullet wearing, uh, you know, hill hillbillies and and whatever, right? I mean, that's sort of the the, the stereotype of the, of the Trump voter. It's amazing to me because I, I know some Trump voters here in New York City who are like lawyers and investment bankers, and anyway, but 
nonetheless, the, the stereotype is um, honestly, it, it really is what is often uh, unkindly referred to as as white trash. Uh, media, you'll notice, has sort of stayed away from that designation for a while. But that's that's the perception they're trying to drive home is that Trump voters are white trash. Um, they're always trying to wh- white trash and also, cra- you know, white trash, violent and crazy. That's supposed to be the now you can say that. I mean, and, and Charles Cook before said there's a an alt right fringe that is de- <laughs> that is deplorable <laughs> to borrow a word from Hillary. Um, and there certainly are people who act like maniacs in support of Trump in a way that's just it's just gross and and uh, really unbecoming and disgusting. Um, but when you look at the the only way that Donald that Donald Trump could be within 10 points of Hillary Clinton is that a vast majority of Republicans are willing to support the Republican nominee, which means that uh, millions and millions of the same people who are going to be voting for Donald Trump, voted for Mitt Romney, voted for George Bush, voted for McCain, you know, voted for Reagan. Same people. Millions and millions and millions of them across the country. Right. If that wasn't the case, if Trump only had, you know, his hardcore supporters, which let's call it 20 percent, 25 percent of the GOP, maybe in the prime GOP primary voters, not GOP overall. Um, if that were the case. He'd be down. I mean, yeah, he'd be down like libertarian Gary Johnson is down in the contest. You know what I mean? It would just be a complete wipeout. They can only even have a contest because most people who are Republicans are willing to either enthusiastically or not. And I'm in the not, but solid not meaning. I mean, not but solidly pulling the lever. I mean, I'm going to do it, guys. I know. We'll talk about it afterwards. We're going to have a little little therapy session for Buck. Um, but means that the same people that are, you know, the the educated, uh, family-oriented, Romney, McCain, George W. Bush voters are voting for Trump. But you never get that percent. They don't want to talk about that. It's also why, by the way, the sort of mainstream establishment GOP figures who usually go on TV to explain their, you know, the GOP position and the Republican Party's position have fallen away in favor of like the the raving Trump, you know, Trump lunatics, right? Because the media likes to have that. They they want that perception out there that there are people who just defend Trump no matter what. They'll defend anything Trump says. The Hillary people will also defend anything Hillary says, but they don't push as much. They don't force people into a corner, right? They don't say. You know, your husband was accused of rape. What do you think about that, Hillary? No, really, what do you think about that? No, you're going to defend that? I mean, they don't do that. Okay. Back to this piece in the New York Times. They want to create the perception in the minds of the elites in this country that uh, Trump voters, and a lot of them already think this, Trump voters are not only backwards and uh, regressive and uh, just sort of the unwashed masses, that Trump voters are the sort of distilled right-wing, Bible-thumping, hoi polloi, uh, but also that they're dangerous, that they are violent, that they're evil. Because as long as that's the idea, then anything the New York Times does to defeat this group is justified, right? All of the hit pieces, the dishonesty, the you know editorial board smears of either Trump surrogates or Trump himself, whatever the case may be, anything is justified because... You see, the Times wants the elites on the coasts that read the New York Times to know that they are standing athwart a monster who has many 
underling monsters across the country who will take up arms and will be violent and will destroy this country unless they are defeated. And oh, by the way, they might have to be suppressed after the election, too. As you go through this piece, by the way, you get to uh, where, where did it go here? I'm trying to find where it is. It's somewhere in here. It's not that easy to find. They talk to like 50 people. And that's supposed to be this is a front page article in one of the biggest newspapers in the country. They spoke to 50 or so different Trump supporters and picked a few different stories to tell here. What do you think it would look like if you decided to sit down with the most, you know, to, to find uh, 50 diehard Hillary supporters and start to push them on the issues? What do you think they would say? You know, if you started to ask them, you know, is, is, is Trump Hitler and, you know, are, are we all going to be, I don't know, herded into FEMA camps and will there be mass deportations of, of, of people that have opposed Trump and all this stuff? I mean, they would say crazy things. You could find people at a If you took 50 people at a Hillary rally and tried to and ask them certain questions and try to pick the three craziest stories, um, you could do that. And this is just journalistic malpractice, but. The New York Times isn't about journalism. This is, of course, the great lie that is the New York Times. The New York Times is constantly pushing an agenda with information. That's what it does. And the agenda right now is full-fledged Hillary. And if that means that they have to convince Americans, uh, the convince the sort of elites in blue states, that Trump voters are going to take up arms against the government, and that's how dangerous they are which I can tell you is not going to happen. But if they can convince people of that because it makes everything else easier and excusable, they'll do it. That's how dishonest they are. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Halloween, not only are Trump supporters based on a handful of them saying some dumb things going to uh, storm the White House if they don't, if Trump doesn't win the election, you had uh, just, what was this, a few days ago, Donald Trump's threat to reject election results alarms scholars. Oh no, this was also the New York Times. Oh no, once the scholars are alarmed, what are we going to do? I'm so scared. This is just all nonsense. It's it's pathetic, isn't it? It's just so childish. But I think it's effective, unfortunately. You create this idea that uh, there all these calamities will befall us. If I mean, I mean, real calamities, you know, violent revolution, rejection of election results and all this. If Donald Trump loses, he's going to say some things about how, you know, whatever he says, I don't even know. You know, maybe he'll say it was rigged. And then he's going to go back to building golf courses and hiring us. Okay, these guys not leading a revolution nor any of his people. So can we just stop with the with the whatever it is that they're doing out there? So annoying. Uh, Mosul, ISIS, what's going on overseas? We're going to hit that top of the next hour. Stay with me back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
spreading freedom across the nation. This is Three, Two, One. The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, we're here in hour three. Let's start it off with a buck brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the buck brief. Michael Pregent is a former intel officer with the United States military and an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He was just over in Iraq. We're going to talk to him about the major offensive to take back Mosul from the Islamic State. Mike, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. Appreciate it. All right, Mike, you were just over there. Tell us, what did you see? What did you find out? Well, um, I, I was with the Peshmerga, so I went to the uh, front lines with the Peshmerga on two fronts, the uh, Mashika front and the the Mahmur front. And basically, these, these towns and the towns that the Iraqi army have, have said they've... Uh, Secured already, uh, basically are uninhabited. Uh, there are obstacle belts, there are snipers, there are tunnels, and there are pockets of resistance. But you're looking at anywhere from ten to thirty guys. So that's what the battle is has primarily been focused on now is securing the route to Mosul. So the the, the Mosul operation itself uh, hasn't started yet, but it's basically like marching on DC and and you're and you're still in Fredericksburg or you're still, you know, on your way to D.C. on, on I-95. So you're not there yet, not even close to it, and that's the real fight, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. So they're sort of in the outlying outlying towns and districts making their way closer to Mosul. I know the estimates are that there are about 5,000 ISIS fighters that have stayed behind and are dug in in, in Mosul. Uh, would you say the, the resistance that the, the Pesh, the Peshmerga, have been up against is more or less what they expected, or has it been a bit a bit stiffer, a bit more fierce than they had anticipated? There have admittedly been some surprises. Uh, the tunnel networks were a little bit more advanced than they thought, I and mean, you've seen some of the videos with an ISIS fighter actually detonating, you know, blowing himself up, things like that. But um, you know, so far it's been a, a, a selfie campaign. Uh, majority of the front line, it's Iraqi soldiers. Uh, militias and and even the Peshmerga taking photos of themselves on the front line, uh, which which is good in a way because it shows that there's security. But at at the same time, all it takes is an ISIS sniper to take one of them out, and then there's chaos. Right. So it, it doesn't really appear like something you and I would be used to, as far as a U.S. military operation where soldiers aren't taking selfies on the front line. It's a methodical approach. It's a logistical approach, and it's an intel driven operation right now in my assessment just just based on what i saw there on the ground and what i've been tracking um you know through through sources and other reports is that there are four different efforts going into mosul there's the peshmerga effort they will not go into mosul they're simply going to take blocking positions around the city uh, basically the eastern side of the city and the southeastern side then the iraqi army which is actually going to go into mosul and then you have the Shia militias, which are the wild card, which say that they are not asking permission to go into Mosul, uh, and they'll be part of the operation. And that's what's prompting the Turkish response. That's what's prompting the Peshmerga to be more concerned. And that's what's prompting the Iraqi security forces to say that, hey, we got this under control. What is and the Turkish – what are, what are the Turkish equities in this? Why are they in a, in a tizzy about what's going on in Mosul? Well, well the thing about – the, the proximity of, of Mosul to the Turkish border, and their main concern is, as this 
predominantly Shia Iraqi force comes towards Mosul, and there's the Peshmerga come from the east, another force that that Mosulawis, people from Mosul, consider invaders, that the refugees are simply going to go to Turkey. So the Turkish forces are there to, to stop that. They're also there to reassure the public that, hey, we're, we're, we're not coming in to destroy your city or um, label you as ISIS collaborators. We're actually here to ensure ISIS can't come this way and encourage you not to come this way as well. And I say that in soft terms. What are some of the dirty tricks that the Pesh or that you just expect ISIS to pull to, to pull here in order to make this? I mean, clearly for them, even if they can't hold the city, and it, it seems like they can't, it might take weeks, maybe months for the city to be cleared. But just based on the numbers, eventually ISIS, uh, there will be no ISIS flags flying over Mosul, one would think. But the more casualties, the more chaos and the more disorder they can sow in the meantime, the better for the ISIS cause. What are some of the things that you expect will happen? I mean, I'm seeing reports of uh, threats of mass mass execution for anybody who either is deemed to be a possible collaborator or anybody who tries to flee the city. What sort of things is ISIS preparing to do as these forces get closer and the noose gets tighter? Well, there are intimidation campaigns. There there have been executions almost daily of, of what ISIS is calling traitors or collaborators that are working with the Peshmerga the Americans or the Iraqi security forces. So there's that type of intimidation campaign. Separately, ISIS has a guarantee system, whereas if I'm a Mosul resident and I'm going to go to Baghdad for something, I have to designate three family members that basically act as hostages, and they'll be killed if I don't return. So there's that type of thing that that has been in place for two and a half years already. So ISIS already knows who to punish if people start working with the resistance. Um, separate from that, um, they basically uh, uh, set fire to this this sulfur mine, and, and that's been making a lot of the uh, <clears throat> a lot of the troops on the front lines sick and not you know nauseous, and and lighting oil uh, wells on fire. But you know you can expect. I mean, I when I was in Mosul, there are places you just can't you can't drive down with a tank or a striker vehicle, which is an up-armored, armored personnel carrier. You can get there with Humvees, but there's such narrow roads, and they're all overwatched by these balconies where ISIS can employ snipers, ISIS can employ IEDs, and my concern is that the Shia militias and the Iraqi army simply rubble the areas like that, uh, basically causing mass civilian casualties, indiscriminate targeting of civilians, allowing ISIS to blend in with the refugees as they as they push out, and allows ISIS to to morph into an Al Qaeda like model where they don't raise the flag like you mentioned. They simply just go back into the population, start building their cells again, and carrying out high profile attacks against. Uh, what is the likelihood in your estimation that they would be able to, and, and having spoken to the Peshmerga, who obviously have a very uh, good view of the, of the situation and, and are running their own sources and, and intel all the time and have been for a long time, uh, the ability of uh, of ISIS to do exactly that, to try to melt back into the civilian population, that would tend to work, it would seem, only if there was a perception among some, some pockets of Sunni Arabs that either there would, they're just terrified of retribution and so they're not going to sort of out- ISIS even after they've lost ground, or there's some sympathetic uh, sympathetic pockets of Sunni Arabs in Mosul who maybe uh, are more worried about the Shia militias than they are about ISIS guys being in charge. Is, is that a possibility, or is that going to be particularly difficult for them, given the perceptions 
of Sunni Arabs in Mosul about ISIS. I know that's a mouthful and a lot of stuff going on there, but basically no, 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 how, how, how possible is it for them to melt back into the population if the population is going to point them out and be like, get that guy? Well, well I think what's going to happen is ISIS, uh, the Sunni Iraqi members of ISIS that are from Mosul are going to allow the low-hanging fruit, the Chechnya, the guy from Indonesia, the, the guy from Pakistan, to, to be the guys that the Sunnis say, look, there's an ISIS fighter, and those guys go away, and then allow themselves to, to melt into the population. And then what that does is those, those residents from Mosul know that that guy behind them looking over their shoulder is a member of ISIS, but also knows that he knows every member of their family. He knows every member where the fear of retribution will keep them silent. Or there might actually be tacit approval for what the Iraqi from Mosul was trying to do as a member of ISIS. There's that. I will tell you that the Peshmerga are more concerned about the Shia militias than they are about ISIS. They're concerned about encroachment uh, towards Kirkuk and Hawija. Uh, the Shia militias say they're there to defeat ISIS. Uh, but you saw ISIS be able to conduct attacks in Kirkuk, and they were conducting the attacks from areas where the Shia militias were supposedly there to kill ISIS. So there's there's more concern about what the Shia militias are doing in this part of Iraq than there, than there is about ISIS. Again, like you said, less than 5,000 fighters in a population of 1.2 million. There's no reason to destroy the city for, for 5,000 people. A lot of those guys are going to go to ground. A lot of them are just simply going to leave or or like you mentioned, be ratted out by the, the Muslawis that that tell Iraqi security forces uh, who these guys are. Hopefully that's the case. One thing, one positive thing that I saw is there's a lot of intelligence sharing. There are Sunni residents in Mosul and the outlying towns that are trying to get intelligence to the Peshmerga and to Iraqi army units they consider credible to, to stay off to stay the Shia militia advance on Mosul. They don't want to see what happened in Ramadi and Fallujah and Tikrit happen to Mosul. So they're actually working. There's an underground system there that, that is against ISIS, and I think it needs to be cultivated. I think it needs to be allowed to, to grow, supported, and developed so that this becomes an intelligence-based operation and not simply one of retribution like a lot of the Shia militia commanders are saying. What is the post, uh, the sort of post- Operation Stabilization Force supposed to be? Do they have that more or less in place? I mean, are the Kurds going to sort of take the east bank of the Tigris and the Iraqi government will take the west? How is this supposed to work? Well, see, that, that's the interesting thing about how many, how many groups are actually participating in the Mosul Offensive. If they had a priority list, priorities one and two are not ISIS and securing the Sunni population. It's to ensure that the other groups don't gain more leverage. The Peshmerga have sworn to stay out. They're simply there to, to, to go into blocking positions. The ISF is supposed to go in. Again, this is a predominantly Shia ISF. When I was there, these, these were regular army units carrying sectarian flags into Kurdistan that not only sends a message to, to Sunni, the Sunni residents of Mosul that we are coming, it also sends a message to the Kurds that we have primacy. And that is an alienating signal, and the Peshmerga were very concerned about it. I talked to a Peshmerga commander who said, hey, we told them to take the flags down, and then they put them right back up. And I took some pictures and filmed some video of it because these aren't Shia militias carrying these sectarian flags. These are uniformed Iraqi army carrying these flags, meaning the militias are uniformed and are also in the Hashid al-Shabi, or the Shia militia, which is known as the Popular Mobilization Units. Or the popular Why are the force? Shia militia more effective in in these sort of uh, you know door kicking 
house-to-house clearing operations than ISF that have had U.S. training and have had a number of years now to kind of get it all together? Well, there are units within the shoe militias that, that are good at that when they're going after a high-value target. But in these cases, they're simply looking at neighborhoods and saying, collaborators, destroy it. And you're seeing an emphasis on the use of crude munitions, um, crude artillery and rockets that aren't, that aren't uh, precision-guided weapons. So there's that. If they're going after a high-value target, they'll do exactly what you said. If they're simply looking to punish a neighborhood, they'll, they'll basically rubble every building in that neighborhood. Who's to stop them if they start getting a, a little out of hand? I mean, we only have a small number of U.S. troops there, and they're in an advisory role. If this thing gets ugly as they get inside Mosul city limits, can you see this getting out of hand pretty quickly? Well, Buck, all we have to do is look at Ramadi and Fallujah. Uh, security left to Shia militias in both cities. Um, they get to decide what residents get to come back. We we have lowered the standard for counterinsurgency so low that now it's simply, this is the strategy. Go in, punish a Sunni population, exit them from the town, rubble buildings in the town, replace the ISIS flag with an Iraqi flag, and call it success. Uh, during the U.S. occupation of Iraq, we never went into a city one time and declared victory. We had to go in numerous times, and we only got it right when we finally empowered the Sunni population to go after al-Qaeda. And in this strategy, since ISIS came into Iraq, there has been no instance yet to build a credible Sunni force to take, go after ISIS or to reconcile with Iraq's Sunni population to ensure ISIS doesn't get to come back. Michael Pregent is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's a former U.S. military intel officer. You can follow him, M.P. Pregent, on Twitter. Uh, Michael, always great to have you. Good to have you back safe and sound, and uh, come back soon. All right. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Team, we've got more. Stay with me through the break. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. to the Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, as you can hear, the operation to take Mosul uh, is going to be uh, going on for quite some time, and we'll have uh, quite a bit of complexity in it. Uh, one thing that I think, you know, not, neither administration um, is going to be uh, really prepared for is the, the scope and scale of the national security challenges Um that face whoever actually comes into office. Uh, I don't think Hillary Clinton is ready for it. I don't think Donald Trump is ready for it. I mean, they're going to have to... There'll be a lot of discussion about doctrine and what the view of the world will be. And, of course, that stuff always falls away oftentimes. I said always, but usually falls away the moment that real national security challenges are faced. Uh, They become much more, uh, you know... I still love the Mike Dyson phrase, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face, or everybody has a game plan until they're punched in the face, or whatever the, whatever the actual wording of it is. It's very true. And true at national security strategy level, too. Um, but, yeah, that's that's something that I think the next administration is going to have to face. The campaign in Syria, uh, the reconstruction of Libya, 
uh, Russian expansionism and meddling, Iranian uh, expansionism and meddling, uh, deteriorating Afghanistan, that I already mentioned that, uh, poor relations with Pakistan, uh, all of this. Right? And never mind the still very real threat of continued uh, mass casualty attacks from ISIS infiltrators in Europe uh, and even here in America. Interesting, isn't it, that, that mass casualty attacks, in, they, they were happening once a month for about eight months. They've stopped recently. Um, I don't have a why on that, um, and I wouldn't pretend to, but I do find it interesting, given what we know about how widespread the infiltration of the Islamic State, certainly in Europe, uh, has been. And then also the efforts to, if not radicalize via Internet and proxy, also to infiltrate ISIS fighters into America, that we haven't had an attack in a while seems to me to be curious. I'm, look, I'm obviously happy. It would be nice if we never had another attack in Europe or in America. Uh, but we know that they want to. There's a warning, I think, recently. I think I saw this on Fox News. A warning um, sort of a reminder of ISIS and uh, its uh, intent to hit us here at home. But that hasn't happened in a while. And I, I, they pay attention to U.S. politics. They pay attention to what goes on in the news cycle here. Remember, much of terrorism is, in a sense, violent theater, right? It's to create perceptions it's 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 uh, the propaganda effect you get from acts of violence in furtherance of a certain cause so the notion that given that there's a presidential election happening in this country and it would be quiet on the european stage and on the american stage it's hard for me to think that that's entirely an accident now it could be that european intelligence services have wrapped up most of the major active cells and there's a lull that's very that's possible but i just think that it's worth noting that we went about eight months with a major terrorist attack isis inspired or directed or al-qaeda inspired or directed every single month this year up until i don't know maybe july was i think the last one was in nice in southern france and we've had this quiet period it has been quiet um, I would like to think that it will stay quiet forever but I think that's unrealistic and so it brings me to think what has slowed down the attack planning is it that they're focused on trying to cause maximum carnage and difficulty in Mosul or is it, is it that the fight in Syria has now uh, become urgent for them I mean there there are other explanations for it than they want to influence US politics one way or another but I do think that we're allowed to sit back and at least ponder whether ISIS has a preference in all of this for which American commander-in-chief they would face. I do think that's a possibility. 888 uh, on the phones. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about some Clinton Foundation dirty laundry. It's going to be fun. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
The Buck Sexton Show. So, the New York Times has some splaining to do, like Vox-splaining, and they have to splain away Hillary Clinton's foundation and the problems that it causes for her politically. This is because anyone can see the conflation of charitable business with personal profit and understand that it stinks, that it is enormously problematic for her campaign, that she is somebody who, even when it's recognizable to anybody at the time, that this is a mistake, that this is a political liability, will still go ahead. If the price is right, she'll still do it. So will Bill. And oh, by the way, in these emails, Chelsea comes across as quite a brat, based on at least what Doug Band, who founded Teneo Consulting, which kind of mixed in together the Clinton Foundation business, the charitable side of things, with a very high-priced consulting ring. And... Wow, people wanted to pay a lot of money for the thoughts of Band and a few other people around him. Or was it because they figured Band had access, continuous access, to the Clintons? Uh, There were very real perceptions of pay-to-play here. There were very real issues that came up, and and Clinton aides were aware of it. Um, Here's from the New York Times. In the years before Hillary Clinton announced she would run again for president... Her top aides expressed profound concerns in internal emails about how foreign donations to the Clinton Foundation and Bill Clinton's own money-making ventures would affect Mrs. Clinton's political future. The emails obtained by hackers and being gradually released by WikiLeaks this month also are revealing how efforts to minimize potential conflicts at the foundation led to power struggles and infighting among the foundation and the family. Um, it's amazing as you look at all of this stuff. The the corruption actually stinks to high heaven. It is terrible and obvious. And yet the New York Times has to find ways to sort of tell you the story without really telling you the story. Oh, well, you know, yes, there are people who will say this, comma, but. But... um, First of all, they're they're declining to verify. They're running these stories, and they always say the Clinton Foundation or these Clinton, uh, I'm sorry, Clinton campaign operatives declined to verify. This is a quote: the authenticity of the emails, but said the hack was part of the Russian government's efforts to use cyber attacks to influence the election in favor of the Republican nominee Donald Trump. Okay, so they won't verify, but then they'll turn around and take you know take use it as a hit against Trump, right? That's pretty astonishing. That's uh, the sort of thing that you wouldn't you would you know that they wouldn't let Donald Trump get away with that. You know that his campaign would be forced to answer. Um, And what you see in some of these emails, by the way, also is that whether or not the Clintons were officially selling access. And I've been saying this to you for a long time. This has come out in some of the recent WikiLeaks stuff. People thought they were buying access. So that's not good. Quote, in March 2015, Viktor Pinchuk, a Ukrainian steel magnate who had been given more than who had given more than 10 million dollars to the foundation, the Clinton Foundation, was relentlessly requesting a meeting with Mr. Clinton, according to an aide. If the former president declined, the relationship would be damaged. Mr. Desai wrote 
in an email. Oh, so you give money to the Clinton Foundation and then you get access to the Clintons to talk about non. It's not like these people are requesting meetings because they want to make sure their money is going to feeding needy children or, you know, vaccination programs. No, this Ukrainian steel magnate obviously had business to discuss. They don't say whether or not the meeting actually took place. But the point here is that the people writing these enormous checks were under the very understandable impression that they were buying access to Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton, both of them, and all of their contacts and all of the sway that they had. I mean, that Hillary would announce her officially launch her candidacy for the presidency and then think that it might be okay to take $12 million from the king of Morocco. Uh, yeah, I know it didn't. She didn't end up going, but her husband went as sort of proxy. And uh, Chelsea went. Chelsea, by the way, comes across in this as just, you know, the, uh, what is it, the Dauphin? I mean, she's the, the heir apparent who likes to throw her weight around and go complain to daddy whenever things don't go her way. Very unflattering picture of uh, Chelsea Clinton from these uh, from these emails that have come out. Um, and sh- she was not a fan of some of the other Clinton cronies using the access and the family name to try to raise money. Only, you see, only the Clintons are supposed to get rich off of selling access. Only the Clintons are supposed to be in a role where they can make a ton of money and also pretend that they're doing good in the rest of the world. Some of these other sort of flunkies that attach themselves to the Clintons, well, that's not, a, that's not acceptable for them. That's not the way that it is supposed to be, um, at least not according to the way Chelsea views the world, as we see in these emails. Um, there also, by the way, was a clear correlation between between donations to the foundation and paid work for the Clintons. Hey, I'm going to give money to the Clinton Foundation. I'm also going to sponsor a few speeches worth a million, two million, maybe three million dollars for Bill. Why do those things go together? Think about that for a moment. Why give money to a charitable foundation and then also hire Bill Clinton to give very, very overpriced, expensive speeches? The only reason you would do that is if you thought you were buying the Clintons and their access and their ability to operate, particularly under shady circumstances in the third world, like the reconstruction of Haiti and other international projects where who you know is a lot more important than anything else. Mining concessions, those sorts of things, those backroom deals that happen abroad that U.S. regulators can't really and won't, even if they could, get too involved in, especially when it involves a Clinton. They're just going to let that fly. They're going to let that go. Why a correlation between charitable giving and very expensive speeches for Bill Clinton? You can't do the one without the other. That only makes sense if you think you're in a rent a Clinton situation. And that's. What was happening? Also, why do Bill Clinton's speeches get more highly paid the further from office he is when his wife all of a sudden is secretary of state? I think that's all quite obvious. You see, the appearance of corruption as corruption in itself is the standard for other people, but not for the Clintons. In fact, with the Clintons, actual corruption is not corruption. I I don't know what they'd have to do at this point for the FBI to take serious. Well, look at what just happened. I just stumbled into the trap. 
what could be done what could be done in order to get the FBI uh, to take seriously an investigation of the Clintons? I think the answer is nothing. I don't think there's anything that would ever be unearthed in these emails. I don't think there's anything that the Clintons could expose or be exposed on that would then bring the FBI to take seriously its obligation to enforce federal law against them. Not going to happen, especially not at this point. I mean, everyone's saying Hillary's about to win, right? Do you you want to be the FBI special agent charged with looking into Bill's finances? I don't think so. Your career is going nowhere. You are in all kinds of trouble if that's the assignment that you get. Um, So, uh, oh, I also like that. It's clear the New York Times even has to point out that some of her close aides, including Huma Abedin, wrote she created this mess and she knows it about the twelve million dollar Morocco situation, meaning that it's obvious to everybody that Hillary does this kind of stuff, that it's bad, that she's really rich. She doesn't have to do this, but she can't help it. As I said, as I started out the show, this is who she is. And this is who wants to be your next commander in chief and leader of the free world. That's what we are dealing with, my friends. That is, in fact, the situation. The Clintons have normalized corruption. Um, They have normalized it. And now we don't even know what counts as corruption anymore. Or at least we're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to be able to discern that what they do is, in fact, criminal. Not just gross politically, But criminal. We're going to have two criminals in the White House. And yeah, I know people can chant, lock her up, and they can say all these things, and we can all sort of talk tough about it, but nothing's going to happen to them. Nothing. They will get away without facing justice. And in fact, even worse, they will have perverted the justice system, and then they will weaponize it. Then they will go after those who are speaking truth all this time. Then they will make examples of people. That's what's coming. That's why I can't do anything but try to stop Hillary Clinton from becoming the next president of the United States. Everything in my power, what little power I have. We'll go into a break. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. So Michelle Obama is out there making the case for uh, Hillary and Trump had some interesting words to share about how Michelle wasn't always exactly a big Hillary fan. Play it. We have a bunch of babies running our country, folks. We have a bunch of losers. They're losers. They're babies. We have a president. All he wants to do is campaign. His wife, all she wants to do is campaign. And I see how much his wife likes Hillary. But wasn't she the one that originally started the statement, if you can't take care of your home, right? You can't take care of the White House or the country. Where's that? I don't hear that. I don't hear that. 
She's the one that started that. I said, we can't say that. It's too vicious. Can you believe it? I said that. We can't say it. They said, well, Michelle Obama said it. I said, she did? Now, she said that, but we don't hear about that. Yep. Uh, there's Trump uh, doing his Trumptastic best, um, doing his Trumptastic best to try and point out that the Obamas and the Clintons are uh, not really not not really that close until now. And look, I, I think Obama realizes that his legacy is very much tied to uh, his legacy is very much tied to a Clinton presidency in that. A lot of what he has done could be undone by a Trump presidency, and he recognizes that. Uh, he has an understanding that there needs to be a Democrat in the White House to sort of finish uh, some of the things that he has put in motion, which is also, yet again, another reason why I find it so necessary, uh, so necessary to oppose Hillary, right? Because you're really not just opposing Hillary and the next four or eight years. You're also trying to put a stop to the Obama agenda. I mean, she has been openly campaigning on how she would be a continuation, a sort of third Obama term, if you will. And that's just too much for me to bear. I do not want to have to deal with that. Although it would consolidate the conservative opposition, I got to say, I'm seeing a lot of really nasty stuff from conservatives to other conservatives in media, uh, from people that have taken it as their life's work to try and defend conservative values or be Republicans or whatever the case may be. I find it all very disheartening. Um, and I, I, you know, sometimes I kind of wish I would, I think about, I don't just say I wish, I think about taking sides and all that. And, and, I, and I don't because I don't like to encourage this. Why? Why are we fighting within our own ideological family? We got enough to do to convince people on the other side that they're wrong and bring them over to our side and to speak truth to those who constantly spread lies and disinformation uh, on the Democrat side of things. That's a Herculean task. I, I don't think we should take our eye off the ball and say nasty things about each other. There will be I do think there will have to be some sort of a reckoning for some people on election day when um after election day rather if it if it really is obvious that they were not true believers but were opportunistic uh, if you have a big sway a big megaphone and you've been opportunistic in this process there should be some accountability for that i'm not one to say that people should be sort of chased out of the public square or anything like that or you know never 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 uh, watch or listen or buy from you know buy so and so's book or something ever again but there's been some dishonesty on display there there has been some opportunism in all of this and i think it has been to the detriment of the republican party i think it's been the detriment of the country uh, and I, and I really I just don't like what I see. I mean, Twitter, some of you have noticed I'm kind of quieter on Twitter now than I, I used to be. And it's largely because I just it's just like, why get into the sewer? And I, I don't want to have some snarky back and forth with somebody on Twitter with whom I agree on 90 percent of issues. Right. Why would I want to do that? Would try to mock someone publicly because they choose a different candidate than I do. I'm, I've seen it's not just now, although I feel like there's more of it now. I just disapprove of that. And, and it's not me. And I, I wish there was less of it. And I think there's been a lot of egos that have been hurt in this whole process. I think there are a lot of individuals who feel like 
They've either unfairly benefited, others have unfairly benefited, or they've been suppressed. Anyway, we'll deal with all this after the election. But in the meantime, tomorrow, guys, I've got a lot of fun stuff planned for our Halloween show. Not that much in the way of politics tomorrow at all. We're going to be talking about some funky stuff. Think last Friday, but with a holiday, with a Halloween rather theme. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a really mellow, cool, interesting Friday show tomorrow. So if you've had enough of politics but want to have a great radio show, join me here tomorrow. As always, Shields High. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.